Hey, Alex. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Hey, Alex. Yes. Let's start a podcast. I know that a lot of musicians, um, like Avril Lavigne, got a lot of props from like hardcore musicians at one point. Oh God. Because she was at the Much Music Video Awards and she started singing. Yeah. And she just ripped her earpieces out and fucking rocked it. Ooh. Okay. And they were all like, "Oh my God, she can do it!" And <laughs> and she was like, "Yeah, the earpiece was giving me the wrong information, so fuck the earpiece. I know what go. I sound like." Man, Avril Skater Boy Levine. God, that reminds me of this. Uh, th- like, there's this very famous uh, like top ten fighting. She's big on TikTok right now, by the way. Really? Like, sorry, one of her songs is a big track on TikTok. Oh my God, yo. There was a couple people that made that pivot. I think I might have mentioned this before already, but Jack Black just like crushed it with his new, like he just became a streamer and his personality's <laughs> perfect for it. Like, oh my God. Yeah. 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 He is. There's no doubt. <laughs> he just, his recent video was just him shirtless in like um, bicycle shorts doing stretches on a half pipe in his backyard. And then he went to play Red Dead Redemption and it's got like 5 million views. Did you see, he did this whole thing where he was like, I do want to hire a personal trainer. Let's be real. I've got money. So here's the deal. I want you to make me look ripped, but don't you fucking tell me what to eat. I'm going to take care of that part. (laughs) He's like, I I don't want to give up a single thing. What is, I want all the groceries in one bag, but I don't want it to be heavy. Like he was basically like, I want to know if it's possible. Oh my God. I'm willing to pay for it. Literally, literally you can't. No, well, okay, hold on. You can't. Yo, all right. No, you can't. And I and fight me because here's here's it's why really I fucking hard. It is you cannot. And here's my here's my thesis statement with that. Um. Oh God, is it like D- John Delauer? There, there's this video on YouTube, and I, okay, my thesis statement is a video on YouTube. I saw a video. Um. Basically, two people beside each other, and one dude was doing like high intensity interval sprints on a treadmill and just like crushing it. And it's like, okay, calories burned over time. And he had a little counter Uh, beside him was his training partner, just shoveling um, Ben and Jerry's ice cream as fast as he could. And they actually had the calories burned calories consumed counter. And there's no way there's no way it's like super saiyan three goku versus like raditz you cannot ever beat the know. ice cream turn up intake. the heat in your house or, or turn on <laughs> the air conditioning all the time yo that you could be manny pacquiao sweatsuit you could be doing what you want you cannot beat the chicken wear fingers. a garbage bag all the time you could you do both freezing cold house i suppose you uh, could. <laughs> what else wear lead weights on your arms and legs like you'll be fine i will you know what jason i will acquiesce to this if you were doing like trenbolone and clenbuterol and you're just like mainlining stimulants i didn't even think about stimulants and like uh laxatives and and shit like if you're just shitting real ice cream like if you're shitting like a soft serve like it doesn't even go through your body then okay you can eat what you want and then you know I, I also think that you would have hated knowing me in high school because I was like this scrawny, 135-pound, tall-ass oh, dude, dude who fucking ate McDonald's for lunch every day and had a six-pack. <laughs> and like, I get that Jack Black is not in in high school, but... Yeah. Well, I, I mean, some, I was like a Sasquatch in high school, so it's all good. Some people have the genes. Like, it is what it is. It, man, I was... I look... I say this to you with full, like... Complete authority. I looked older at fourteen than I do now. 
like I literally looked like a 45 year old man at 14. And that's why I was, people were, were calling me sir when I was like 14, 15. Oh my God. The things I got up to. Uh, yeah, I did not look old at 14. Uh, you know, I mean, again, it's genetics. It's, it's, you know, uh, yeah, choices. I mean, haircut, no beard, acne everywhere. What, what kind of hair? Well, I had back knee, so that's a whole I different story. I used to story. do the... Ooh, the, the middle part, the berry boy, like dead center middle part. See, my I've got and the my widow's... My fucking enormous. It just doesn't work. <laughs> I think my... Mm, okay, you have a large head, but you are also tall, but I also have a huge head, but I'm also tall, so who... I don't know, big head wars, maybe? We'll have to measure. We'll do a girth measurement one day. My sister, so this is like just my, I always, I always share the story as like my chops for, you don't understand how big my head actually is. Okay. <laughs> In my family, my sister, who's petite, you've met her. She's. Oh uh, yeah. Small. Yes. Yep. She's like half your height. Yeah. 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 She wears a men's large hat. Oh That's yeah. A, okay. A big, large, large head. So literally full grown men will be like, Hey, you need a hat? Wear mine. And I'm like, yeah, no, I can't. <laughs> right. And every time they're like, no, 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 it'll be fine. Just put it on. I have a big head too. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Donk. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, all right, now that we both have migraines, can, can we just go back? <laughs> One of those like uh, little, do they, they like, okay. They, do they still make monkeys wear hats? They, did that still happen in like culture, world culture? Somewhere. Where, like, somewhere, somewhere is a, a monkey's wearing a hat, but the hat is like super small. That's... I just watched Tiger King. Have you seen Tiger King? <laughs> no. My God, fuck Carol Baskin. Fuck that Carol is the Baskin. Most, listen, fuck them all. There's not a good person in that. Oh God, that is okay. All right. Do you wanna go? Do you wanna jump into this or should I? Because like I got some stuff to say about that for our listeners. Are we live right now? Oh, I you never know when we're live. We're totally live. Welcome to okay, cool. welcome all to right. Dickensian epilogues. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, okay, so the positive hmm. narrative in the midst of chaos right now is just yes. how freaking consumable tiger king is all right go Dude. tell me your stuff okay so for a uh, a prefix a preface here for our listeners tiger king just dropped on netflix no no okay i'm gonna preface this You're are you prefacing all right yeah, Here, yeah, yeah. here's the preface. preface if you haven't seen it yet hit pause go watch it because mm. once you start you'll just finish that before you come back anyway Bruh. go to avoid spoilers for the netflix series tiger king please skip to 1645 yeah, okay, Tiger King, and it was funny because I was texting my girlfriend, and she's like with on her WhatsApp group, and she's like, "Alex, how do I describe Tiger King?" And I'm like, "It is like, it it is Trailer Park Boys meets Hunter Thompson esque insanity dialed up to eleven, but it's real life. Like this is the most stranger than fiction scenario. It basically follows this group of American exotic animal dealers and their their tertiary personalities and just how it is just this this magnet for the weirdest, most fucked up people. Have you ever seen um Wild Wild Country, Jason? No. That that covers this sort of like cult aspect. There's I don't know how how spoilery you want to get, but you know there's this guy. He's the Tiger King. His name's Joe Exotic. He like farms tigers for a living. He's in this feud with this other woman who is like this wildlife um, virtue signaling crazy bitch. But she's also has these like skeletons, literal yeah, skeletons she, in the closet. She actually owns the big cat rescue and she's like famous 
for trying to stop exotic animal trade in the US. But oh. all of the exotic animal traders are like, she's just stealing our animals and starting her own zoo. <laughs> and and oh. basically that's true. Yes. Yeah. She's yeah, like this no, millionaire. Is. And she's like, oh, these guys are all exploiting their staff. They're exploiting these animals. And then you find out she doesn't have staff. She just has volunteers. Yeah. And, and they're like... there on Christmas feeding her big cats. Doc Antle is the Mugatu of fucking real life. He is like half Mugatu and half like religious cult leader. He like, and for our listeners who've seen, who's, who, who have clearly watched the series because we forced you to, um, he like, I don't know about you, Jason, but like when you look at him, and I was listening to another podcast about this that put it very succinctly. The fa the the editing and the 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 way it's done through the documentarian style, you get to see the mask come off with so many of these people. Because Doc Antle runs oh this God. tiger compound. Like, this this needs to win awards, dude. He like he's got this fucking harem of women. He changes all their names. He's got this weird like virgin complex. So he's like fucking like five women and like f picking up fake names for them, like like Mara and like Askun. It's right out of so. What what was so stunning about the whole series? Is it mm. eight episodes? It's something like that, right? Uh, so yeah, eight to ten. Uh, it it starts off so nicely. They just introduce yeah. these zookeepers. You get kind of interested in like the kooky personalities and yep. then they hit you with like, boom, one of them's in jail right now. Yeah. And oh my God. Like, yeah. Like talking about, uh, oh crap. I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> ah, damn COVID. Oh, he's got the COVID. Well, uh, let me, uh, let okay, me, wait, hold on. So yeah. the guy was sick. He had all these twisted. Oh, and they've got the girl who came out of his harem and she's yeah! describing how it all goes down and she's oh. like yeah you start working there you're innocent it's fun because he hits you with like a pet tiger and he tells you like oh the baby tiger loves you and then he wants to sleep with you and you don't <laughs> want to sleep with him so anyway i boned him and then and then you're gonna get breast implants against your will and we've just had we just had it organized and now you're getting breast implants and we're gonna change your name and you can't leave the compound and you're working 18 hours a day yeah oh my god that I episode the one where they go through that is a hundred percent a documentary uh, documentary about a cult but yes. the one before that is a documentary about like a strange industry feud and the yes. episode after that is about uh how this chick might have murdered her previous husband and <laughs> fed her to fucking what? tigers like, <laughs> and then he runs for the presidency like oh. every episode it felt like they were wrapping the series up and then yeah. they just hit you yeah. another tweet <laughs> man it i always so like i was talking to uh, like i watched it with my girlfriend and again we binged it because like what are you gonna do we're in quarantine you know the situation being as it is i imagined it like it, again, it's done so well uh, as a drama because how the information is doled out to you initially, you're looking at like Carol Baskin and Joe Exotic, and you're like, "Ugh, Joe Exotic's such a uh, like a jerk asshole," and he's like, um, you know, f forcing these straight men into these uh, into um, you know his erotic relationships so he can like pay for their lifestyle and and like shower them with like guns and weed, and then he's got two straight husbands he's somehow, got two straight husbands and then like but then it's almost like a race it's almost like initial d where these three cars are vying for like who's the most disgusting and then by one episode joe exotic pulls out to the lead and he's like oh and he's he's like uh gathering these like homeless vagrants and people down on their luck 
to like work at his tiger compound. And then you get a Carol Baskin episode and she rams up to the first place like, oh, she might have killed her husband and fed her to tigers. And then Doc Handel comes in from the side at like episode five and is like, bro, into first place, like, boom, harem. He's, he has a god complex. He changed his name to like Bhagavan, which means like vision of God. And he runs this fucking tiger compound with all like eight wives. It is a trip. And the, the first introduction to him, he's like, here's how we're going to help conservation. And we're educating and we're blah, blah, blah. And when we take the cage away and let people pet the tigers, then they get really involved in global conservation because they have a personal relationship with the problem. And yeah. it's how I funnel young women into my home. <laughs> you know what? So low key, the most disgusting guy, low key, and I can't remember his name, but around like the third act where Joe Exotic is like sucking all the money from his parents and then using their, um, you know, distress and and indignation and tears for his fucking weirdo Twitch stream to try to get more money. Like he's getting his mom crying on camera to be like, oh, it's all Carol Vasquez's fault. The guy that comes in that quote unquote millionaire I don't know what, I can't remember what his name is, but he's got the fucking, Jeff, Lowe. Jeff fucking Low, low key is the actual scoundrel of that series. If for nothing else, then his style, Jason, he is the most he poorly dressed human the... being I've ever seen in my life. It's like a 50 oh year old God. man and he's got a fucking like Oakley hat and a bandana and like, Oh, and a swinger wife. Oh my god! And the jungle bus, and they're like pedal, putting tigers in like suitcases. Oh my god! Like that was actually a bit disturbing to me, where the tigers were just like being put in suitcases to go up to oh Las Vegas god. hotel rooms. And then like his swinger wife gets pregnant, so he hires a hotter nanny. Oh, oh god, yeah! And he's looking through. The, he's like scrolling with his wife, like, oh, if you have a nanny, you might as well have somebody good to look at. Ha ha ha! Yeah, oh. like. I mean, you never know what's going on behind the scenes, but nope. the documentary portrays it as just like, there's no interest left in his wife. Oh, it, it is it hard is... to watch. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say the one trigger warning, there is a huge mental health trigger in there. Massive, massive. Uh, there. Yep. That was the most shocking scene. I don't even want to yeah. like, really talk about it too no, much. No, I hear you. I know what you're whoa, talking about. that yeah, they bruh. did that. Bruh. And the footage, the CCTV footage, that shot... Again, stranger than fiction. You you can't I, write that. When he was describing it, I was ready for the fact that it happened. Yeah, but I was I was not computing that the CCTV footage that they were showing was actually the moment he was describing. Yes, and then there's the flash. Yes, yeah, it's um, I I was wondering what because it's it, this is and again. Like not the most positive material to be watching. Like I was, I was like episode seven, episode eight, and I'm kind of like, ugh. Like these people are just so vile. They're so disgusting. And I was wondering, like, what is the through line here? Like, what is the thing that is attracting everybody to this weird lifestyle? And then it hit me. I'm like, oh right, breaking the law, <laughs> the, the, the cri criminally exploiting exotic animals. Right. That's why everybody in this story just seems to be a complete fucking asshole. Yeah. I mean, I guess it takes a certain kind of person to want to breed a tiger. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the kind of person who walks into a tiger cage, I imagine, is not the kind of person with, like, strong impulse control who is ready to make... <laughs> 
good long-term decisions yeah. about their life. Yes. And then when you add to that, just like the guns and the, the sex stuff and yep. the meth, the surprising number of maybe murders. Uh, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> it is. Yeah. That, so what, like again, you know, I, mental health warning, but watch that show y'all. I am not willing to go to a private zoo ever again. <laughs> oh, I was, I'm anti-zoo. <clears throat> like I was anti-zoo for year, like most of my life. Like I don't even want to go to Ripley's Aquarium, but seeing this is like, fuck <laughs> that shit. Like if I want to see a wild animal, if I want to see a tiger, I'm going to drive to where the tigers are. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I actually have mix, mixed feelings about it. Um, mm. So having studied conservation, Yes. A lot of these municipal zoos and like the, the funded science programs have a role in conservation that that is important. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of these rescues, not not this big cat rescue that sounds a little suspect. <laughs> yeah. But like there are rescued animals at Toronto Zoo, for example. That, oh, I didn't know that. Well, oh. yeah. So uh, I shouldn't say all like some of them are still coming from means that you and I might find a little suspect. But mm -hmm. um, some of them are coming from like illegal circuses and people's backyards that got kind of shut down. I see. I see. And so there are municipal zoos that end up with these animals and they care for them as best they can. But maybe more importantly, they have outreach programs and research programs. And it gets very interesting because like Toronto zoo was funding a study that I helped with when I was a student and we went out and really? did all this stuff in the, in the Rouge, um, the Rouge river. And without that, like the, the reality of conservation is that governments are not going to just be able to do it. It, it doesn't have yeah. like the public. It's, it's actually a lot like public health in that sense that the governments just don't have the political will to push that through. Interesting. Um, so there needs to be a level of outreach that's accessible to people. Yeah. And so like that Doc Antle guy is preying on something that's actually kind of real. Yes. Uh, although yes. obviously he's not living up to it, which is, <laughs> If I can create a personal connection between you and tigers, then I can make you give a shit about a jungle that you'll never visit. Yeah, because it's it's all about the stories, right? It's it's you can. Um, I think Stalin said that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, and if you can make people, um, that's why you see, um, you know, uh, high, highway side posters and stuff like that. You'll never see a statistic on that poster because facts aren't what is going to emotionally motivate people to take action in that sense. What will will be like, you know, the feeling of a baby tiger perhaps, or seeing somebody like one human face suffering is worth more than like saying that there are such and such millions of people in that situation. Yeah. And so you get kids who grow up and they visit Tony the tiger at the zoo and, um, <laughs> is he really called Tony the tiger? It, it becomes, no, it becomes part of what they care about as they age. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so mixed feelings. It, it's the same problem slash solution with like national parks, for example, mm -hmm. where nature reserves in the U S actually attract tourism and in doing so attract more garbage, more disturbance, more issues. Ooh, interesting. And yet, however, in Europe, those same reserve style spaces have excluded people and, and allowed them to preserve something in a space that's been more challenging because there's more population in a smaller area. Interesting. Is there a difference between a zoo, like to, to, for, for a, a, an establishment to call oneself a conservatory or a conservation effort rather is like, can you, 
is it like okay, no people can be if it's a if it's a conservation, you can't have people, or can you have a have people with a conservation and it's more sort of gray? Yeah, I I don't think there's a black and white definition really anywhere, but you usually within a country or within a region of some kind, there will be different versions of of each of those things. Interesting. So like a zoo is kind of obvious. It's it's a place where um, entertainment put in enclosures for people to look at. Yeah. A preserve, I think, is often where animals are bred on purpose Oh, in sort of an area. And so you'll see those in, in parts of Africa where like breeding elephants, for example, is not straightforward and it's a long process. Yeah, it yeah. It takes longer to raise an elephant than to raise a human being. It's like, what, 12-month gestation, 13 months? Yeah, uh, like it's, it's long. Yeah. And so they'll they'll make these big areas that are just sort of protected and managed. Yep. So it's not without human intervention. Mm-hmm. But then you also have areas where parks are created that are just like exclude people. Yep. But we don't manage anything. Other other than the exclusion of people, th- this area is just left to nature. I see. I see. And then you have areas that are like mixtures of that and yeah. That does sound I, like everywhere it does area. things a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh in in North America we do a lot of camping. Right. right. So big people culture. are visiting these sites and then you have sort of like a hybrid in a sense, because a lot of the conservation areas, at least in Ontario that I've visited, have huge areas where people don't go. And right. so they're protected yes. because the park is there. And I mean, our but, province is huge, right? Like we're Ontario is bigger than Texas. So it's like we yeah. have oh, yeah, so yeah. much northern green spaces. And Canada is the second biggest country in the world. Yeah. 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 By, by landmass. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, yeah, so we have these parks and they're huge protected areas, but then on the fringe of those protected areas are like car campsites, which mm. are completely disturbed by humans Totes. constantly and hiking trails that, that sort of blend the line a little bit. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I've, I'm so, yeah, I mean, yeah. like Carol Baskin, for example, has a point that petting animals is exploitive, exploitative. But the guys back have a point too. That's like, she's just doing the same thing in a different way. And she's also exploitative. And, you know, when you start looking at her revenue numbers, it's frightening. Oh, the the one, the most, the most screwed up thing for me was just looking at the personality of that second husband. That was the most like whipped human being in existence. Like he didn't even, he wasn't even like a body. He was like this husk, like yes man creature. And then you saw the photo of him like literally in a collar and Carol Baskin like has him like a pet as like, you know, a Halloween costume. Behind the scenes, they have a, they have a deal that he's just like, look, I will cheerlead everything. I will help manage your various lawsuits. I'll be a part of everything. And your job is not murder me. And then the two of them have like the most um, inauthentic relationship, and it's all like it looks like a PR thing. Yeah, no, just like la la la, save the animals, la la la, save the animals. Please don't kill me. Stay strapped or get clapped. As as so much fun. Yeah, I like I I I try not to binge TV too much. That was. Ooh, that was great. It's great. Binge-worthy television. The last thing. Yeah, I think that'll be... Well, I mean, yeah. I I, the, I, I can't remember of something I've binged before Tiger King. Like, years. It's been years. But this one, it was like, next episode, next episode, next episode. Very compelling. 
Jason, Yo. how are you feeling? How's the Rona? How um, are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, better each day, I think, by a little bit. Um, That's good. We are uniquely meeting at 9 a.m. because it's not a work day for me today. Yeah, this is an early day. This is a Saturday. On the yeah, time so of I feel more energetic. I By the end of the day, I'm very tired each day this week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if you've ever had the flu, that part is pretty similar. The, the sort of like brain fog that comes with it. Yeah. And then the really fa- fatigued feeling. So stuff is just taxing right now. Absolutely. Um, I had an interesting experience yesterday with uh, reminding myself that I have to look at at uh, at my actions from the outside sometimes. Well, tell me about it. So I have coronavirus. Yeah, he's COVID-19. got the COVID. Do we get anything sidebar? Any oh, no. confirmation? So I don't have test results yet. I've, I've done the test. Yep. That was we'll, our previous episode. We talked about that. Yeah, we'll definitely get some update eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm considered a suspected case. Oh boy. By community transmission. So, uh, as opposed to travel, those are the two things. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. Somebody in the community. I put on my Facebook last night, um, the family was sort of like playing games and stuff. I was too tired. So I, I went downstairs to finish Tiger King (laughs) and, uh, I put on Facebook just, Hey guys, looks like I most likely have COVID-19. Uh, Doing well, can I ask, or does anyone have any questions that they'd like to ask? And my thinking, because I was sort of being myopic and maybe narcissistic, was like, everyone wants to know the inside of the process. Position of authority. See where the sausage is made, you know, all that kind of stuff. What I actually triggered was like a wave of sympathy. Oh, (laughs) no. And some concern. And I forgot, like, really dumb little forgetful things. Like I hadn't notified some members of my family. Mm, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we had cousins like reaching out frantically, like, is everyone okay? Yeah. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Um, some really nice stuff. Like shout mm-hmm. out to Nick Capo, who is offering to drive me food. You know, oh, that's uh, great. Pat, Pat F checked in on me for, uh, from far away. So very, very cool. That stuff was good. I, I think I triggered a little panic, which was interesting. Yeah. I hadn't been thinking about the fact that from my perspective, I was on day five of COVID, understanding that it's basically going to be minor for me, period. Yes. And um, that's the perspective perhaps engendered either by media or people's own influences or their own fears, maybe imagining you, you know, strapped up to a ventilator, you know, at death's door kind of thing. I didn't even think about the fact. So we we t- we mentioned in the last episode that if if I didn't have a baby, I wouldn't get tested. Right. Yes. They only tested me because I have a baby at home, and I I think that it's basically a doctor who doesn't want it on his conscience. Mm. So he made an exception for me, essentially. Yeah. Most people at my level of illness are unreported, and that means that when we're looking at the news and the numbers and the stats we don't really have a concept of how common and how commonly um, not so dramatic. <laughs> yeah. How, how, how normal, how humdrum. Yeah. Right. And, and again, like even though the death rate might be higher than a normal flu, it's yeah. low in general, but we're looking at death numbers every day. And, and we're looking at the big scary map of red countries right. and everybody and with their own seeing, opinions. 
New York City and, and Italy and yeah. areas that are already overwhelmed. And we're not one of those areas yet. Yeah. Thank goodness. And masks Maybe are scary. We will be. Like, that's why Halloween uh, is the way it is. Like, walking, people walking around with face masks freak people out. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I didn't really think that through and uh, caused a little wave of panic. So, oh, boy. Anyway, I'm doing great. Well, anyone who uh, listens to this episode can clearly hear uh, no Darth Vader respirating beeping or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly coughing a lot. And I've heard that one of the issues that some people have is, like, a lot of scarring on the inside of your lungs. Oh, this is like my. really irritating. Yeah. yeah and I yeah. can definitely feel when I take deep breaths, like the wetness it tickles. Like okay. It, there's a real irritation there. Yeah. 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 And, and that seems to be the source of the coughing. One of the uh, quickest uh, regenerative tissues are in your lungs for people who are concerned about any kind of lasting jam damage in that capacity. Your, your, was it the vacuoles? The, the air, not the areola that's a different thing but um that's a different that's thing. A, a different thing entirely but your uh, your liver your eye tissue the igues humor and your lungs so for people who perhaps are are currently have covid19 and are listening right now and thinking there might be any sort of lasting damage i would uh, i would uh, posit that to be very very unlikely uh yeah. <laughs> this is a bunch of doctors that disagree with you oh, but boy. Uh, yeah so but i got the microphone though <laughs> yeah, I, I think again, My again, it's always going to come back to the younger you are, the more likely to recover, and the mm, fewer mm. risk factors you have, mm. the more likely you are to recover. That's so that's a good point. Um, I think people who should be especially careful are anyone who smokes or vapes. Yes, um, because yes. in both cases, and I know everyone wants to say that vaping is safer than smoking, and it probably is, but like walking in front of a car is safer than walking in front of a bus. <laughs> yeah it's, it's just not that meaningful and right? i mean like if the vape oil is not cut with anything because that was i i mean b before the COVID 19 thing uh blew all that kind of alarmist other valence alarmist media out of the water if our listeners recall there was this big scare in the united states about vaping and vaping deaths and vaping illnesses and that was all you know the the nature of vaping in a perfect world is yes more healthier than combustible cigarettes however that is to uh you know um a priori imagine that the oil that you buy is perfectly pure whatever flavorings that you're putting in and that wasn't the case because these kids were buying vape uh like jewel packs and stuff like that that were third party and had a lot yeah. of um, pollutants in it and that was causing a lot of uh, infections and even the pure ones i mean th yep. there's a higher rate of um a higher rate of stomach and lung cancer in some parts of china where people just fry food hot yeah and it's from yeah. the smoke that they're breathing in and the uh the uh, the advanced so, the ages advanced glycation end products that you'll find in any kind of charred meat or vegetables that black stuff is uh yeah it's a carcinogen yeah and it gets in the air and so then yeah. you breathe it in so my point is just if if you have that kind of lung irritation and you know just if you vape just consider yourself to have it please yeah you need to be especially careful because th what I had is, is not a big deal because I have healthy lungs. Yes. If, you, if you have 20% less healthy lungs, that cough is going to be mm. more than 20% worse. Uh, that's that's a very good out. clarification, Jason. Absolutely. Or fibromyalgia or any kind of other, uh, uh, you know, uh, premeditated, pre pre-existing condition. Pre-existing condition. Yeah. And uh, ditto for like the common ones in North America are going to be obesity. If you're yeah. overweight, you need to be very careful right now. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
age is a big one. You can't do much about it, but be careful of the aging people around you. Yep. And yep. Uh, I, I saw this interesting thing actually from Czechoslovakia. Oh, tell me about you know, that. Czech Republic. The Czech Republic. I don't yeah. remember. Yeah, Czech Republic is the contemporary country, right? They they are the Mandalorians of the world. I have a I have a, a Czech uh, co colleague who is uh, apparently he told me, and this is second second uh, um, uh, fact from from just hearsay, but like eighty percent of the world's guns are made in the Czech Republic, or like the gun technology in the Czech Republic is massive, and they're like massive gun. It's like a gun nuts fantasy. So I think okay. Mandalorian when I think Czech Republic. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Among European nations right now, they are uniquely protected from coronavirus. Huh. They've done a good job of mitigating and a good job of containing. That's great. So what they did that's the same as us is social distancing and hygiene. So right. step up the hand washing yep. and all that kind of More stuff. More frequently. What they did that's different is everybody wore masks. They mandated it early on. Really? Yeah. Now they ran out of masks just like anybody else. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But they started making the homemade uh, homemade masks. At the time of this recording, the United States has just suggested from a federal level that um, certain high-risk areas, the individual citizenries uh, consider wearing non-medical masks. So like bandanas uh, and towels and stuff like that. And so this is something that the Czech Republic did, did very early on then, before the curve spiked. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too into politics, but I'll, I just also mm -hmm. want to say that the American president in the press conference said, everyone should do that. I'm not going to. Everyone should. I'm not going to, but everyone yeah, should. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, America. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, yeah. in the Czech Republic, they just did it and everyone did mm. it. And the point is, you know, in the American thinking, for example, they were saying the mask is not going to 100% protect you. It minimally protects you from the 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 uh, the way that the illness will get into your body, and that has some truth to it. Well, I mean, our health, uh, our like health representative in Canada suggested that one of the biggest deterrents that was involved with mask wearing is it would deter the individual from touching their own face or like the mucous membrane in their eye. So, I mean, like, there's there's that. Also, yeah, inhaling. So, wait, sorry, that's. That's a big reason to wear the mask. Yes, yes, it prevents okay. uh, prevents somebody from touching their own face uh, simply because there's a mask in the way, and it's it you know primes your psychology. I would surmise to just be so, more aware of that. That's true, but also where masks destroy viral transmission, like just cut it right out, is uh, it prevents you from spreading to other people. Yes, very significantly. So yes. like yeah. It doesn't prevent transmission in as effectively as some other means. Yep. Fair enough. Like people are not sneezing into each other's mouths. They're sneezing onto a surface, yada, yada, yada. Unless you go to those they really weird parties. Yeah. <laughs> they prevent you from transmitting the disease outward, yep. which is a huge problem because this disease spreads asymptomatically, which we saw in, in my case, presumably. Yep. Which means Anyways, to so our listeners that uh, to be asymptomatic means to be without symptoms. It doesn't mean that you don't have the virus. Um, yes. What that means is uh, occasionally, uh, uh, in many cases, actually, uh, if you inhale the viral particles, which are a virus particle is extremely small. 
uh, compared. It's smaller than your human cells. It's smaller than bacteria. It is just uh, super nano, uh, infinitesimally small. It will reside in your throat, in your nasopharynx, in your your throat and nose. Um, but you will be asymptomatic, which means you are not going to feel sick and you're not going to look sick. But if you're breathing out, those virus particles are going to be breathing out onto uh, high traffic touch surfaces, uh, lingering in the air. So, and this again, Jason ties perfectly into our theme that we were talking about from last episode of the crux, the power, the personal power of being able to stop this thing in its tracks instead of feeling so powerless, powerless by wearing a mask. Even if you feel like you're going, you're being sick, or if you're in a high traffic area, you are making a difference by potentially not spreading that to other people being asymptomatic. I think what I learned watching that video, because they were pointing out the reason they've had success with that in the Czech Republic is because mm -hmm. everybody adopted. So yes, when I wear it and you wear it, I protect you while you protect me. Yes. Yes. I don't protect me. You protect me. And I, let's put a pin on that, Jason. You, by wearing a mask, what Jason just said, by wearing a mask, if you feel like you're asymptomatic or not, or if you're just in a high traffic area, and again, the situation is developing every week, every day. There's, there's new things. There's different things. Perhaps in the, in the previous weeks and months, it developed way faster. We had to make changes much more rapidly. Perhaps, you know, it might be suggested that things are sort of a wait and see scenario, at least in our country with the uh, laws and regulations we have enact, in, enacted to prevent the further spread of COVID-19. However, you are, by wearing that mask, if you feel it necessary in a high traffic area, or if you feel like you might have been exposed to it, you are protecting everybody else. Everyone you see in that high traffic yeah. area, in that grocery store, in that pharmacy, in that hospital, you are protecting everybody else by wearing a mask yourself. And I think that we kind of ended up conceiving of public health in the wrong way. Mm. Um, and, and experts had sort of warned of this to an extent, but Right now, politically, at least in North America, collectivism is sort of a bad word. Like it's it's yeah. seen as it's a four-letter oh, word. Yeah, you wanna like, if you want to talk about collectivism, you must mean communist Russia. Okay, yeah. comrade, whatever. Yeah. Or like uh, and, Huxley or Orwell or this dystopian nightmare, yeah. no freedom, that kind of thing. But the reality of public health is clearly, like clearly, I don't think we can really ignore is that it's a series of collective issues yeah. that we can't incentivize locally. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really know the answer. I, I was listening to a thing this morning that said a uh, billion dollars of research dedicated to a game changing influenza vaccine uh -huh. would yield results within 10 years. That's the reality of the science. Yeah. Um, but the, the world organizations are basically dedicating a hundred million dollars to it. And yeah. then the rest of the billion is just spread out in like sporadic flu stuff locally yes. around the world. Yes. And there's no sort of cohesive effort to, to deal with that. And I guess what I hope, the, the, mm. the narrative that emerges out of this pandemic is that cooperation in advance could have led to a much different outcome. And maybe there's an opportunity here to to sort of unite uh, uh, around the world on that. I, I don't know what it even looks like. I recognize that it's complicated. Yeah. Um, but that's a utopian ideal that we might have to start looking at. 
I'm I'm not a political scientist, Jason. I'm not even a regular scientist. Um, but I do have a microphone and I do have opinions. Um, <laughs> when we when we talk about the idea of freedom, because a lot of th this word and this concept is tied up with talking about uh, collectivism and working as a group and working as a team, there is an important distinction to be made. And one is the difference between freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from things is usually the uh, the calling card of somebody who's like desperately afraid of, of intercession from an outside body, right? Could be the government, could be religious, could be uh, nationalistic. It's like, okay, the government is telling me what to do. These outside forces, uh, uh, these groups are telling me what to do. I need freedom from that. So what am I going to do? I'm going to cut myself off from the grid. I'm going to get my own, you know, stuff. I'm going to get my farm. I'm going to get my, uh, uh, I'm going to protect my stuff, my home, my family. I'm, I have freedom from, freedom from the tax man, et cetera. What I'm a libertarian. I'm a, yeah, call it what you, call it what you want, right? Don't tread on me. You know, I got my stuff, you know, fuck you. I got mine, right? That, and that can, it can become that. It can become that. I'm not saying that's wrong in itself because we all want our personal freedom, freedom from tyranny. Yes. Freedom from persecution. Yes. But there is also the distinction of freedom to. Because I live in an environment where I am surrounded by citizens who pay taxes, because I'm surrounded in an environment where I have people who acquiesce to put their children into public education systems and acquiesce to listen to authoritative bodies, uh, medical or military or otherwise, I can walk down the street unmolested. I can, I can lock my apartment door and there's a, not a very likely chance. And obviously like the neighborhood I live in and, there, and there's a lot of factors involved, but like brass tacks here, the streets are lit. I turn on my tap and there's water. And uh, if I get into trouble, I can call a phone number and I can have somebody to help me. The, I, from strangers, from strangers, from people I've never known, because we are acting as a team and that is the freedom to, I have the freedom to, progress in whatever way I want. I can read the books that I want. I can talk about the ideas that I want. We can post this on the internet if we want, right? And all those, all of those things are being supported by a collective unit. And I will say one more thing in the idea of wearing masks, because Jason, you said earlier, the idea that it's very, very hard to incentivize in this macro scale. And I agree. And I have a very, uh, um, uh, an important uh, element here where I believe it was the Egyptian government we're paying people sums of money. Uh, this might be, I'm quoting uh, Anti-Fragile by the author Nassim Taleb here. Uh, essentially, uh, the, they would pay, uh, pay a large sum of money for any sort of ancient tablets that they would find. And what began to happen was people would find a tablet and they would break it up and destroy it into tiny pieces in order to get the government to pay money for each individual tablet. And it is in that way uh, that, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're pay, if you try to get the cobras out of your city, I will pay for any, I will pay money for every dead cobra. I see people start breeding cobras. So I think it's important that yeah. we understand what do we want out of our citizens? We want our citizens to be mindful and to stop the spread of COVID, whatever that entails. If that entails shelter in place, if that entails public mask wearing, if that entails assiduous hand washing, the, the focus is to stop the spread. And, and, and sort of to, to uh, um, censure anybody or to incentivize outside of or contrary to uh, the goal is might run into problems. Yeah, it works for me. Awesome. 
And I wanted to talk a bit about intentions, Jason. And I wanted to talk a bit about goals. And I have a question for you. Is, were there any times in your life where goals were important to you? Because we're in an environment of massive uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know if we don't know if our government's going to force us to wear masks or like in other governments or in other countries, stop people from going outside. Rightfully so. So again, from our previous episode, we were talking about that circle of control and that circle of concern and making sure that that circle of concern doesn't get too big while your circle of control is sort of getting smaller and smaller and controlling less and less in your life. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. what, um, has there ever been any times in your life where we're setting goals were particularly yeah, important to you? Uh, so I've actually been moving kind of away from goals, and I'll, I'll Ooh, tell me about that. And it's not, it's not that I don't have any. Um, however, I found when I was more goal oriented, one problem that I had is that goals are always time bound. Mm-hmm. by nature and if your goal is longer than a certain time frame it's it's downright difficult to conceive mm-hmm. uh like if i mean you could have some 15 year goals on things that take 15 years like buying a house maybe yeah something like that you know becoming ceo of a company these things take time i guess yeah however most of the time i found that goals were relatively uh little utility to to the point in my life where I am right now. Mm -hmm. Um, As a young person coming out of school, I was used to four months at a time, one semester, one semester, one semester. Yes. And so goals became the natural bridge between my professional life and my academic life, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to navigate the, the realities of work life where I am now. That's not so useful to me. Like setting a six month in six months, I want to be blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yep. I do them because they help me at work and I do them because they help me at home, but they're really not the main part of my system right now. Good stuff. Instead, I work on creating systems that will sustain me for the long term. And Mm -hmm. so uh, various writers have talked about this in depth. I think a guy I don't like, Scott Adams actually wrote a good one. Um, He's the, the guy who wrote Dilbert or draws Dilbert. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, he's got... His personal development stuff is interesting. He's just dumb about some other things. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so for example, when I was outlining that workout plan that I was doing. Yes, yes. Right. So that's a system in the sense that my goal is not to lift a particular weight. My goal is not to run a certain time. Those are good. Like if you want to run a race over the summer, set a time. I think you should. And I think you should, you know, by the end of this race season, I want to have raced five. I want to... Um, in one of those races, improve my first time by 10%, whatever is appropriate to you, set those goals, but they should be sustained by a system of, if you want to be a runner, for example, you need to figure out how to sustain running for the long term. Yes. That means incentivizing yourself to work out, to eat right, to actually practice running and so on and so on. And especially right now where there is uncertainty about how long you're going to be out of work. You're going to be working at home. You're going to be socially distant. Yep. I don't know how to set a goal right now. That's meaningful to me in a compelling way in my life as a whole. I, I, I don't have advice for that because literally I was thinking about it the other day and 
I think it's ludicrous to set a goal right now. I am so glad you said that, Jason, because I, uh, the reason why I asked this first question in the past was the exact reason why I wanted to talk about the second question, which was what makes a horrible goal? What makes a goal untenable, toxic, and pretty much worse than useless because we are in a situation and Jason has ameliorated this very, very succinctly. We're in a situation of grave uncertainty. So our listeners to impose, cause I know we all, we all want to make progress. We all want to feel like we're doing something. We all want to feel like we're making a difference. Like oh, people have, some people have lost their jobs, right? We're grabbing, we're trying to grab onto something, but I say this, if we're grabbing onto rigid structure, and untenable goals, it's like you're trying to fly a kite on a stick. You are grabbing onto barbed wire. So my 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 thesis statement for this is by being kind to ourselves, we need to understand that there are some situations where setting a with where assiduous goal setting is not the right way. So I wanted to ask uh, this of you, and I want to I'm going to ask myself as well. Um, what makes a bad goal, Jason? What makes goals crappy? Um, okay. The, the easy stuff is if a goal is too easy or too hard, it's not good. Yep. You have to, it has to be achievable, but it also has to sort of stretch you. Mm -hmm. And if the time frame is too short to be meaningful or too long to be meaningful. Yes. Then I think it, but the main thing for me with, with a goal being good or bad is, is an emotional intelligence point. And that is mm. if the goal compels me forward, like if it, if it's a goal that will pull me to stretch myself, yes. then it is a useful goal. And, and like good, bad, uh, whatever. The yeah. question is, is the goal useful to you? That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to have some outcome, right? Yeah. Um, so for example, right now for me in the pandemic, I would love to spend time uh, learning music again. It's been yes. a long time since I had any practice. Yes. But my reality is that that is so low down my priority list today that I cannot compel myself with a goal to like yeah. pick up my violin and play. Yep. 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 Because like the reality is I'm sick right now. I have a kid at home. Yeah. Working uh, from home. I have to keep working. It is what it is. Yeah. However, uh, there are goals that right now, like within my job where I'm, I'm already putting in time or as mm -hmm. a father or, you know, uh, uh, fitness wise, that those are things that are very compelling to me right now with fitness, for example, as a new dad, Yes. I can't stop thinking about the fact that whatever behavior I model becomes the behavior of the next generation. Oh yeah. Like a times a million. Yeah. They're always looking. I could say that as a teacher to a less degree, but yeah, they're, the modeling is huge. Yeah. yeah. And as a result, the behaviors that I think will enrich his life are behaviors that are very compelling to me right now, emotionally. Mm -hmm. So I can set effective goals within that milieu and i have to accept at you know the reality is i have to accept that a non-emotionally compelling goal that's not personal yes is not a good goal because yes. i just won't put in the work yeah how about you well i i i'm sure for people who know me personally are are sort of balking at the idea that i'm sort of shitting on on goal setting have, having been and continue to be a chronic assiduous goal setter but i just i wanted to do that little bait and switch with our audience because we are in a time 
where the concept of a goal, firstly, is that it is in time, as Jason said earlier. It is time-bound and it is finite. I want to uh, create a certain outcome in a certain period of time. This just not, does not make sense in our environment right now. So what we need to be doing instead is to focus on habits and rituals and lifestyles that will carry us through this scenario. That is where the control is. That is where you're going to increase your circle of control is the rituals and lifestyle changes and things that are um, sustainable and give that sense of normalcy. Not these achievements, uh, this this rah-rah, go-get-em mentality because that is going to lead to overwhelm and it's going to lead to feeling bad which will lead to giving in. So having said that, terrible goals, in my opinion, are completely uh, focused on the reactions of others, first off. My goal is I'm going to change the emotional state of other people. I'm going to get him to like me. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to make such and such <laughs> amount of friends. I'm going to make my boss like me. They're vague. Um, and they're, they're, the, the time frame is too is pushed too much. I, I would assume that a lot of people are probably making goals for things they're going to do in the summer. Ladies and gentlemen, Wimbledon has been canceled and it has not been canceled since World War II. So if you have uh, illusions of going to Turks and Caicos this summer, forget about it. Vacation goals and wedding goals and celebration goals, chuck them out the window because we're not going to be focusing on that right now. Um, I think that goals that are involved with uh, what's called lag measures versus lead measures. So um, Cal Newport, who wrote uh, uh, Deep Work, which is another great sort of uh, a book that you should uh, consider reading, um, talks about like... Yeah, next on my list. Next, oh, next on Jason's list. Awesome. So let's say I want to make a body composition change, for instance. And I'm going to say, okay, I want to I weigh a certain amount by such and such a date. But by the time I sit on that, sit, set, sit on that scale, stand on that scale, all the effort that I've already put into generating that effect has already done. It's in the past. So by the time I'm measuring the goal, it's already over and there's nothing I can do about it, which is why that is such a toxic mentality and, and concept yeah. of, oh, I got to weigh this certain arbitrary weight and my, my body has to be a certain mass on this planet that it's a certain gravitational field. Like, it, First of all, it makes no sense. But secondly, um, what it, I can do instead is uh, a goal that is not a lag measure that lags behind the action, but it could be a lead measure. So I'm going to walk 10 minutes today. Okay, that's a goal, right? That's a goal that's yeah. in the future, and it's something that I can check that box and say, okay, you know, I've 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 achieved that goal. Now, where we can improve that, because we're talking about how goals are not really the most effective thing to be doing right now and setting those rigid goals, is instead think of it like a habit or lifestyle. Instead of saying, you know, at the lowest at the lowest you know uh, uh, rung of this uh, of this uh, mentality is tomorrow. Tomorrow Isle, tomorrow. It's like we're all living on Tomorrow Isle, and it's this beautiful fantasy, Tomorrow Isle. But th there is no tomorrow. Tomorrow is a fantasy. Tomorrow, it's the disease of tomorrow, as as George Gurdjieff said. But then up up higher than that is every day, every day Isle. Every day I will go work out. Every day I will spend some time with such and such a family. I'll create. I'll make music. Like I'll pick up the violin, like Jason was saying. But even more important than that is today. Today I will. Today, I will take a 10-minute walk. And is that, a, is that a goal? Well, it could be. But if you say today and you say it 
with enough regularity, eventually it becomes every day. And it is completely ingrained in your personality. It is just something that you do. It doesn't need to be set. It doesn't need to be followed. If you miss it, you don't feel bad and you don't start flagellating yourself and seeing you're such a crappy person and making yourself wrong for avoiding it. It is just something you do. And that, my listeners, I feel is the important distinction to be focusing on during the time of this pandemic is just finding things to do today that are not goals, that are just something that you can do that will improve the quality of your life. And that is a lead measure. So sort of all, all those things yeah, together. We, we don't know. We don't know how long we're going to be in isolation. We don't yeah. know how long we'll have to social distance and, and all of those things. One thing that I also think is, is relevant here is to start with one area and do yeah. it well, because the first, like my workout thing, this, this is on the back of years of working out. Uh, yes. Yes. You know, like I've been a fit dude for a long time. The habit's already if, there. If right. If it's your first time working out, I don't think you should expect day one to be so great. Yeah. And certainly the first two weeks, you're going to learn a lot of stuff that I learned a long time ago and that's mm -hmm. fine. And so whichever area of novelty you decide to address, or even if it's not that novel, it's just like a weakness of yours right now. Yes. Take your time to do that part well. Yes. And and recognize that you don't have to compare yourself to anybody else, which should be easy right now because everyone's sitting at home watching Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so grab that one area, do it well today. Yeah, absolutely. And then tomorrow, do that thing well today. And 100%. once you've done that for a couple months, and, and people always balk when I tell them to do it for a couple months. They're like, yeah, okay, fine. By the end of April, I'm, I'm talking coming into the summer, mid to end of June, yeah. start looking at adding on a second layer that's either a more in-depth exploration of what you're doing or an exploration of another area. But you don't have to rush these things. And, and just to give you an example, my wife and I did a hike in the Grand Canyon. It's mm. four days. You start on one rim, you hike all the way down to the Colorado River, and you hike all the way back up the side of the, the Grand Canyon. Wow. And in addition to our already, you know, fitness routine, we stepped up for about eight months. And okay. that whole time you're uncertain. Like, I, I just don't, I've never climbed a Grand Canyon before. I, yeah. I just don't know what I'm getting into. And the only reason that I know it worked was because eight months after I started the effort on day four of the hike, Brandy and I hit the top rim of the Grand Canyon and realized that we were not ready to stop, but everyone around us was half dead. Oh my. <laughs> that's the only reason that I knew. And that's the sort of time frame that it took to go yeah. from being just a fit guy to being a guy who could climb the Grand Canyon like twice or three times in a row. And yeah. you know, the, the, the woman who was our guide, she does this every day. Oh, my. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just walking. It's just yep. walking with a backpack on. Yeah. But as a result, she can walk the whole four-day trek in one day, 12 hours. Oh, my God. But yeah, but how did he it. get there? How did she get there, right? Not She from... got there because she hikes the canyon 250 days out of every year. There you go. There you go. <coughs> oh, I just inhaled some water. <laughs> 
no worries. So anyway, I, I just I kind of want to say that time frame thing because I, I think uh, I see a lot of my friends rush things, and so yeah. you know, Alex brought up the weight loss. W- weight loss is uh, a nice benefit of having a good fitness system, and so thank people you who- for saying that. Thank you for saying that. That is the side effect of lifestyle. Um, please continue. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the whole thing. So people who have a uh, people who tend to fail to lose weight multiple times are focused on losing weight rather than building a healthy base for their activities of their life. Yeah, which will then support them looking and feeling better for five, 10, 15 years, a whole lifetime. Yes, that is it is always important, as Jason said, uh, and to build off of what he just said, the goal or the lifestyle habit it's not about the goal. It's never about the goal. It's about well, the okay, person you're going to become. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm going to cut you off. Oh, come I on. actually think, so when Alex and I met, he was a much different person. Mm. And I watched you lose a hundred pounds, gain yes. back some amount 60 of 60 to 70 of them. Yeah. Yo-yo for a while and yeah. then level out into a pretty healthy guy. Mm. So what, what did you, what was a big, moment of realization for you or or like not a moment but like a realization for you that helped you move from the individual goals that were clearly um losing their success over time to like leveling out yeah yeah and becoming generally healthy and by the way much healthier and and better looking than you were as your own base I, I, pr- I received that i appreciate that a lot jason i had to change on the inside I had to change. It had nothing to do with my body or my physical appearance, my, my embodiment. So I, what had to change? It, my mind, my mindset, my perspective, all of my goal setting, all of that zealous work was out of lack. I fundamentally believed that I was not enough, that I, was, I didn't deserve love from other people. I didn't deserve to love myself. I was simply not enough to be alive in this world and i hated me i hated me i hated looking at myself i didn't look at myself when i went had a shower it was very and what is ironic in that jason and for our listeners is at that moment i was the thinnest i was the lightest i was ever in my life I'd lost a hundred pounds. I was a rake. I was almost anemic. And um, notwithstanding the uh, the actual lifestyle choices I was making, because I was immured in uh, some some rather unhealthy sort of health philosophies and just extreme calorie counting. For those like for those of you who are curious, I grew up in the '90s. I grew up at the height of, of fat phobia, so I was just inundated <laughs> with that kind of uh, you know that kind of life. And it, it, it came to a point where it was like, I still feel like shit. And, uh, and I was, I was, you know, okay, so what's the next goal? And, and okay, I lost this amount of uh, pounds and okay, what's the next goal? I'm going to lose that amount of pounds. And I'm going to look like this. And the whole motivation to behind that goal setting was either I'm not enough and I'm going to show them. I didn't even know who them was, Jason. I was yeah. just going to show them. I was going to show them all that I'm not this like, like fat ass, that I'm like a cool, I'm going to be this cool ripped muscular man and I'm going to just show them all. And it was that machismo. It was so toxic to me because I was, I was projecting that hate. And, and years later, I thought of it almost like a metaphor, like the, the, the fuel 
and and I know a lot of our listeners can can uh, can sh- uh, relate to this, but the fuel that I was putting in, the emotional fuel, was like. I might have mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. It was like this disgusting Mad Max uh, uh, off-road jalopy, and it was just like belching smoke, and it was like coming apart at the seams, and it was like like this just this disgusting vehicle. But that was the vehicle that was getting me there. But right. what I needed to realize was because the question was what made me change from yo-yo dieting and being all over the place to evening out is just I had to love myself into change. I had to love, and it's so it's so counterintuitive to people who want to change because in order to change, you need to be completely okay and completely at peace with every decision you've ever made. You need- I, I Another time, I want to actually talk about uh, the usefulness of competition and finding a nemesis in a yeah. healthy way. Yeah. Because you yes. triggered that for me. However, let's put that aside because that's not what you were talking about. I just want to like sort of pin it. I want to ask you though. So Mm -hmm. it is counterintuitive to say, I have to go from hating myself to loving myself to make a change, especially when you might be thinking, I hate myself because I'm not whatever my goal is. So I wanted, I want to see if we can get specific and practical about like, absolutely. What was like one thing that helped you develop into into this new mentality that that pulled you forward instead of drove you with a smoky belching machine. (laughs) So one of the huge things was I stopped focusing on so much of my body and the physical elements of my body and what it was comprised of health wise. And I began to look at the health of my brain. Um, I started listening to a uh, a podcast years ago called the Model Health Podcast with Sean Stevenson. At the time of this recording, it's about 400 and odd episodes. That changed my life. Uh, I read his book, Sleep Smarter, also changed my life. Um, I started to focus on rather than, you know, how can I deprive my body of calories and force energy out of my body through uh, chronic cardio and stuff like that. Um, and I just started to focus on my brain. So what does that look like? Well, I started to really, really focus on my sleep because I was getting up early. I was getting up at five in the morning to run for 45 minutes. I was on seven, six hours of sleep. I was doing that chronically and that was really screwing me up. And, and what I realized through my research is that formerly we had the idea that, you know, uh, exercise, Uh, diet or nutrition and sleep were kind of this triad, but in actuality, sleep is the bedrock of everything. If you don't get enough sleep, if your sleep is subpar, uh, you can't digest food properly. You can't uh, create uh, human growth hormone. You can't, uh, uh, your your cells can't generate uh, adenosine triphosphate, ATP, the, the energy of the cell. So practically, I got some blackout curtains, one, I, uh, <laughs> very, very important. You can, you can shine light on the back of your knee and it still releases uh, cortisol. Uh, I, I put in, mm-hmm. those are okay. Great. Yep. Helpful tips. And I actually think we should, we should talk about the sleep stuff at some time. I know yes. it's a passion of yours, yes. but before we drift too far, yes. I want to highlight some stuff I saw from the out. Oh, tell me. Yeah. Because so Alex talking about this mental shift, um, we knew each other and we actually kind of became friends during that, that period of time. Yeah, we had yeah, known each other yeah. much longer. And uh, way back when we had a kind of book club that we used to read together. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah I and do. 
we read a book called Emotional Intelligence around the time that you're talking about. Yes, yes. So I don't know about for you, but for me, that book was really instructive in recognizing that I had a lot of patterns that were explainable, Mm -hmm. that were not unique, and that were deleterious to my own well-being. Mm-hmm. and they were actionable yeah oh that is they're going to be specific to you yep right but I, like that was a book that started to change how i looked at my own health mm-hmm. and i think it was a, a book that was influential to you as well it was and what i noticed in alex that like behavioral things that started to change not that you were never a nice dude before <laughs> but you went to being very specifically appreciative to the people around you in mm. like very open transparent and like instantaneous ways so like I, yeah i i received that that is such a nice reflection of oh god it's it, you're, it's funny you're evoking like i remember like a year or there was like a few a month period where it's like i'm gonna start really oh god you know what it was <laughs> it was your wedding Oh, yeah. It was your wedding because, all right, here's, oh my God. All right. Here, here was like the, one of the cruxes here is your dad came up to me and gave me like the most beautiful, like paragraph of compliments I have ever received in my life. Cause like I'm an animated dude. I like, I was dancing, I was cutting the rug just generally, you know, it was a great experience, but he was like, oh my God, like you give people permission to be themselves and you're just so warm and outgoing and lovely. And I thought to myself, okay. Because I, but formally to that, I was really difficult. I couldn't take a compliment. It was very hard for me to take a compliment. So I was like, okay, this is clearly my science brain turned on. And I was like, okay, this outward understanding and, uh, uh, you know, observation of my behavior is factual because it come, it came from somebody else. So I'm just going to write that down. And then how it came to be is I started to write down every nice thing that anyone has ever said to me and this when did you get married like uh 2013 okay so so like the eight nine years at the time of this recording i literally my microphone right now jason is perched atop this mason jar that's like five liters and it is filled to bursting with nothing but compliments i've received nice (laughs) whether it's a card or something i've written down it's from all my jobs and i just started to read those back to myself and i started to affirm those in myself I was like yes I, I am creative i am loving and it's hard to hate yourself when everybody tells you not it is it i mean and it can happen but i i forced the good into me i like pushed it into my brain through that practice uh out of curiosity this is going to be a distraction for a second That's do okay. you hear the baby screeching in the background i do not oh cool. <laughs> okay so i have a good enough mic my baby is just having the time of his life in the next room. Oh, bro. He, he's, uh, he's three months old and they learn how to like, not really talk, but like use their mouth. Mm. And so they'll just wake up and practice stuff that they learn. So he'll like flail around and be like, bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> and it sounds like he's crying. And then you look at him, he's got this huge grin on his face. It's pretty oh, cool. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. So the, the story that Alex is talking about, it's kind of interesting, uh, I was among the first of my friends and even family to get married, not the very first. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, we didn't have a ton of money and we had a pretty modest uh, wedding reception, 
but the place was as a result unbelievable because we found this little cheap um greenhouse that does wedding banquets it was so fun and they their capacity is somewhat limited but it's this beautiful uh constantly green there's plants that are permanent everywhere and they light the whole dance floor with uh christmas lights and it's like the, this really immersive place to be it takes you right out of out of the daily hustle and bustle that's what i found yeah we were all there for a wedding we were all having a really great time and then people just started spontaneously being really really nice to each other and <laughs> it, you can like almost trace it back to my dad <laughs> oh i i would i would give him 100 uh uh re, like he was the initiator he was the prime mover yeah. on that so he, he he said at one point he looked around and he realized that weddings are these monumental moments in someone's life that are really hard to acknowledge and yeah. so he decided to just he was like this could be the last time that i see a lot of jason's friends because they're going to start drifting further and further apart mm -hmm. they're going to be less and less tied to coming to my house specifically i'm going to go use that last opportunity to let them all have sort of a monumental moment and and like he didn't see it as monumental that's my word it, it's more just like i'm going to be as honest as i can just for like 30 seconds with each of these guys because these kids deserve to know that, you know, people notice. I think a and good keep walking mm -hmm. around and, and complimented people. It was all very honest, but yeah. I think a good takeaway from our listeners is the fact that this is not some sort of rare superhero occurrence. This, this isn't a climax where it only happens during somebody's wedding. You can absolutely be the person to observe other people and just say what, that that's something good about them. What you've done since then is choose to only record the positive messages that people give you. Yes. And yes. what I have done unintentionally is remember the negative things that people tell me. <laughs> right. I mean, and I like, wouldn't I'm even say myself, unintentionally. I, I think I'm, yeah, I think I'm a little bit balanced on this in general but i certainly suffer from this and i lack the intentionality that, that you're bringing to the table you can choose to record positive messages and replay them physically in front of you yes. every day every week month whatever is yep. appropriate to you and it will help you uh dilute the negative messages that you get that's a thought that's yeah. pretty cool that you do that i think alex that's what i was looking for was was the specific, like an actionable thing, because yeah. when people talk about these shifts in their life, they tend to create this narrative uh, that's very high and encompassing. Yeah. And the problem is we're trying to capture years of changes in, in a moment that's very hard to do. And yeah. sometimes what's really instructive when you're creating a new system for yourself is to uh, pay attention to the tiny actions that we can take right now because even in the midst of a global pandemic where we're at home, I can do push-ups. I can call my friends on Skype. Yeah, I can do these little things that might not seem profound. But then in five years, I can start talking about sweeping changes in my life and changing from one mentality to abundance. And I'm not about scarcity anymore, bro. Yeah, yes. And, and you never 
you never know what you know the the wheel of of like a I don't know what the a proper metaphor for the the author of the slide edge said that like what push like if you're pushing if you're pushing something a snowball down a hill there's no specific push that's going to turn that snowball into an avalanche it's all right. cumulative and I'm going to say I'm going to leave our listeners with one more thing before we sign off here is that when you get a compliment when somebody observes something in you that is nice to them you can have, you have a choice you can either choose to rationalize yourself out of it or you can just look them in the eyes smile and say thank you i receive that and when you say i receive that you are giving your body permission you're giving your mind and your heart permission to take that in as a truth so I want to say to everybody, take care of yourself. We're going to give you more exciting, insightful content coming up next time.